The last episode of Ferment Radio has been published in September last year. Luckily, things are still happening and ferments keep fermenting, whether we post about it online or not. In these months, seven amazing conversations were recorded and I'm excited to share them with you soon. This episode is definitely a reason to celebrate. Not only that we come back with a new batch of episodes, but also that it's already two years since Fairman Radio started to bubble. Yeah! Last year, an article titled Lost in the Brine was published on The Eater. The author, Min Chan, also known as Dr. Chan, says what most people don't want to admit. While the fermented foods industry evangelizes products rooted in global, often East Asian traditions, its most visible faces are predominantly white. As a white horse of a fermentation-related podcast myself, whose guests so far are predominantly white, I had felt the urgency to comment on that issue already for a while. Reading this article assured me about the urgency of this topic and that Min is a perfect guest to share her views with us. Min Chan is a medical doctor, researcher, ferment activist and food literacy advocate. She is a PhD at the University of Melbourne researching the effects of fermented foods on chronic disease via gut microbiota. Min Chan's research is scientific and evidence-based and it aims to demystify some of the most overstated narratives about fermentation. She's also critical from a scientific and diverse perspective about how the food industry capitalizes on fermentation. On this episode of Ferment Radio, we will focus on this problem and how the fermentation industry exists within a system that is inherently racist. I've been I've been researching a little bit on you, like I, you know that that that's my job at Ferment Radio to stalk people. <laughs> um, but um, could you tell us more about who you are and most of all uh, your journey towards or in fermentation? How how it went for you? <laughs> sure. Well, my name is Min, and I'm originally from Malaysia. And my family's uh, Chinese heritage, so we're originally from southern China. But I currently live in Australia, and I've lived here um, on and off since I was about 13. Um, and when it comes to fermenting, I mean, growing up in Malaysia, we were surrounded by ferments all the time. I mean, even without, I wouldn't have thought of them separately as ferments. It was just part of our food culture. And um, I, and I, did especially, like out of everyone in my family, I did especially love ferments, you know, like more like the stinky stuff, as we say, the stinky stuff, the sharp stuff, um, things like balachan and um, different kinds of soy sauces and dobanjang and furu and things like that. But it was only when I went through my weird raw vegan stage in about when I was about 25, so 2006 or so, that I, you know, sort of sort of fermentation or fermented foods as a separate category, I guess. Like in a lot of um, raw vegan books, they they promoted sauerkraut and things like rejuvelac, which I'm, um, which is a basically fermented type of grain. Um, 
And then when I lived in Taiwan, I really got into um, the ferments there and especially the fruit vinegars. So like if when you go to a, a supermarket in Taiwan, they have like a whole shelf section that's just fruit vinegars and they've been long aged and they've got medicinal vinegars as well. And they just drink it like, you know, during their meals. And I thought that was fascinating. And then when I went back to Malaysia, um, so I traveled I traveled with my partner for about five years. We traveled all over the world and we therefore tried lots of different ferments. I did a permaculture course and that's where I also saw Sandal Katz's book, Wild Fermentation, for the first time. And that really inspired me and made me think about it in a different way, think about fermentation in a different way. And then when I went back to Malaysia, um, I saw this um, stall in the shopping center that was like selling vinegar drinks. So they had like different kinds of vinegars mixed in a drink. And that was just sort of a healthy option that you could have. And um, I was thinking about what I was going to do when I came back to Australia. So I, I thought, oh, why don't we do something fermented, some kind of fermented drink? And at the time, there wasn't really much going on here. There was maybe one company doing kombucha and they were sort of hippies. <laughs> and um, so we decided to um, make tibicos which is also known as water kefir. And that happened because the friend I was staying with in Southwest Western Australia, she had some uh, culture and I was like, oh, what's this? This is really interesting. And she gave me some and we drove it across Australia to the East Coast and then we started our business. So um, did that for five years. It was a huge learning curve. And during that time, kombucha became more and more popular. And um then regulations came in, basically, like all the uh, regulatory bodies realized what we were doing and that there was no framework for it. Then they said, OK, you have to have stricter regulation. And, you know, for small businesses like mine, it was really hard to scale up, you know, capital wise. It's really difficult. Um, and then I was doing some consulting work for a tempeh company um, who wanted to make their own culture. And through that, I met. Um, uh, my supervisor, my who ended up the woman who ended up being my PhD supervisor, her name is Dr. Kate Howell at the University of Melbourne, and she said, "Why don't you come do a PhD in fermented foods in some some area of fermented foods?" And I was already very interested in gut microbiome and the connection with fermented foods, and yeah, so I started that in 2018, and um, yeah, I'm I'm about halfway through now the PhD. Um, and yeah, it's stressful, but exciting. <laughs> and what the PhD is looking at is um, the impact of plant-based fermented foods on the gut microbiome in people with, um, say, diabetes, pre-diabetes or uh, obesity. So there's a syndrome called metabolic syndrome, which, which about 25% of the world's population is affected by it. Um, and we're trying to see what effects different kinds of fermented foods may have on improving those health outcomes. I feel in your work, the scientific kind of a part quite strongly, meaning that you are kind of questioning the or demystifying 
some of the kind of the wow information about fermentation, like it this, it that, and you know, you will be healed from, from all the diseases. That's the one part. And second part, you are also kind of uh, maybe looking a little bit more critically on this fermentation boom we are currently, I guess, still going through. Uh, it's kind of a after after boom uh, times, and um, I wanted to ask you maybe the first question from this kind of a territory. Uh, what, in your opinion, are the biggest problems of the um, of this of this uh, fashion for 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 fermented foods and fermentation? Uh, you mean from the uh, the diversity standpoint or the scientific standpoint? Let's start from. Uh, scientific standpoint but definitely let's move to diversity later on sure i think um you know we obviously you you found me through my instagram account and that really started off um as a business account originally and then when i started doing research i realized that there's a lot of misinformation about the well or exaggeration of the impacts of fermented foods um on health And that's because it was very much adopted by the wellness industry and it's become a, you know, capital interest basically for um, in, in the food industry. And my concern is that we have pretty poor nutrition and science literacy, I think, everywhere. But in Australia, we certainly have that situation. And it's very difficult for people to sift through um, evidence-based information And I think the major one is that, you know, fermented foods are a panacea and can fix all the health problems that you have. And linked to that, that your gut microbiome is the, the you know, healing, healing your gut microbiome is central to fixing all your other health problems. I think that the research in both the areas, both in fermented foods and in the gut microbiome is still very preliminary. And there's so much more for us to learn. It's very complex. And yeah, my concern is that consumers are being um, scared into um, eating more fermented foods, thinking that that's going to protect them from, say, COVID. I mean, during COVID, there was articles about natto, you know, protecting you from COVID and kimchi protecting you from COVID. But if you actually go and look at these studies, they're either not human studies, they're like a, a, a cell level um, or a, some sort of in vitro level, um, or they're very small human studies that are not rigorous, right? And the media is very much responsible for this too, because they love to take scientific information out of context and then write these big headlines. You know, so I think the major issue is just over, over the exaggeration of the health benefits of fermented foods. I'm currently doing a systematic review, which is what you do when you're looking for the highest level of evidence for a particular scientific question. And I'm my I'm asking what is the evidence out there in regards to the health effects of fermented foods, right? And Basically, it's still very, very low level evidence, as in the, the studies are quite small, except in Korea. Korea is probably one of the few places that does bigger stu human studies. Um, and I think so we need to be cautious about, you know, saying that fermented foods is going to fix everything. However, having said that, I think eating more fermented foods is beneficial for most people. Um, 
And I don't know if you've seen a recent study done at Stanford. Um, so there's, there's a really well-known couple uh, who are scientists at Stanford, the Sonnenbergs, and they've been looking at gut microbiota um, and food interactions for quite a long time. And they recently just published a study in Cell, which is one of those, you know, very <laughs> prestigious um, uh, scientific journals, where they looked at 36 people. Um, some Half of them were on a high fiber diet and half of them were on a high fermented foods diet. And then they looked at their gut microbiomes. They looked at um, inflammatory markers and things like that, and uh, basically found that the ferment, uh, high fermented foods diet uh, reduced some uh, inflammatory indicators and um, even more so than the dietary fiber, right? However, it's a very small study, and I think it should almost have been called a pilot study, but the way that that's being amplified in the press is uh, sometimes I find it a little concerning. Mm -hmm. I see that. But on a fun part, um, do you remember the most hilarious kind of a headline of the of the article or, or text uh, published online about the benefits of a fermented food? Because some of them are quite, quite, quite hilarious to me, at least. <laughs> I, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I do remember there was a... Um, Gwyneth Paltrow got reprimanded by the UK NHS... Um, head for saying that kombucha and kimchi were going to protect you from you know COVID-19 it was part of a whole um yeah so whenever you think about wellness and misinformation you're basically going to find Gwyneth Paltrow she's <laughs> so um and I think the, the the kimchi and COVID one was also particularly funny because the study had actually just um uh, was just a very skewed study that was obviously trying to find evidence using an epidemiological uh, re research model, which was not really appropriate to be then saying that, you know, this is the, you know, eating kimchi is going to protect you from COVID. So <laughs> do you have, have you seen any that make, made you laugh specifically? Yeah, nothing now comes to my mind, actually, particularly. Um, but yeah, I think I am the most kind of sensitive and maybe this is like a little bit related to what we are uh, where I want to take our conversation about some sorts of um, kind of a primer, primer not destroyed human microbiome. That there is kind of a, this notion of like, a, oh, like a people who were found somewhere, somewhere not impacted by technology and they have this perfect microbiome, which is kind of uh, problematic for, for, for many reasons. I think that this lens is very is very well colonial to me. Yeah, I I think that that ties in with the noble savage idea. You know, somehow when we lived as hunter gatherers, everything was perfect, and you know, from our guts to our behaviors to the way we organize society, you know, suddenly there's that sort of vibe to it. And um, I remember, you know, Tim Spector, who's a well respected. Um, researcher in the UK he you know I appreciate a lot of the work that he does but there was one uh, one episode where he went to Tanzania and lived with the Hadza for like three days and ate their diet for three days and then when he got back to the UK he um, had a microbiome test and he said oh the you know microbial diversity was increased by 20 percent and it's like yeah you could also do that by 
eating more fiber over three days or eating your mom's cooking over three days or, you know, whatever it is. Right. And I was like, mm, dude, you should be a little bit more responsible when making statements like that. But the thinking behind that is we've lost all these microbes. You know, we've, we've had an, a mass extinction and he's not the only one who says this, a mass extinction of gut microbes and bodily microbes because we've um, moved into an industrialized food system. And that's not completely untrue, but I think that, you know, microbes, alone, whether they're in a community or ecosystem, are so pliable and so flexible and so able to, you know, change according to what they need in a particular time period, right? And what they can get from a particular environment that you've created for them. That to say, you know, what is like adding adding a microbe from a Tanzanian tribe to your gut is going to, you know, somehow help your health right i don't think it's it's never going to be that simple i think it's also about like finding solutions somewhere far away in a way that okay we need to eat those avocados or the special nuts or you know something which is kind of extracted from from remote areas in a way or grown far away or or those people who are far away but there is something you know to kind of take from them because maybe we can you know transplant that microbiome whether you know but i think this kind of solutions are there to kind of um uh say like okay we can keep as we are living right now but we just need to have this solution that's this far away so we can you know keep going as we are going and then maybe sometimes you know switch for the hazard diet for two days or something i i totally agree with you and i think this goes back to even interestingly one of the early proponents in the West anyway, of fermented uh, foods in the modern time with Sally Fallon. And she uh, wrote a book called Nourishing Traditions. And um, her work was very much based on the Western A. Price uh, Society, right? Western A. Price was a dentist um, in the, I think the 1920s or so. And he did a quick world travel and had a look at different tribes and different groups of people and he said well they have better dental health and you know they eat these kinds but it was a very superficial survey and I mean I could talk probably for an hour about how problematic that whole situation is but it's still that romanticization of the the savage or the tribe or the you know how we used to be and oh, oh dear this modern life that we live is you know so damaging and i think that's still prevalent in science in science today and not just science in food in food media and food culture you know and same with fermented foods i think actually how how did they find about it is um it was just after your publication of the lost in the uh, brine article in the ether And uh, however it talks about this like uh, whitewashed ferments, uh, it kind of brings it one step forward because it kind of maybe looks more into the industry or like the industry which was created around the um, fermented foods. And actually, I've, I I got the link to this uh, to this text from one of the Ferment Radio followers. So it was interesting that somebody kind of brought it to my attention. Could you tell us? Uh, couple like a words like a, like an abstract or the main po points of uh, lost in the brine lost in the brine the article that i wrote for Ida was very much inspired by my personal experiences being in the fermentation industry and it it looks at how 
uh, in the West. So, you know, I really defined it as Europe, North America, uh, Australasia, right? Um, The way that fermented foods are presented to the public and sold um, to the public are very much uh, uh, monitored by white gatekeepers. And that whiteness in fermentation, like in any industry, in all industries in our entire world, you know, is prevalent in the fermentation industry. But it's particularly interesting because the ferments that we do particularly love are from, you know, uh, Black Indigenous uh, people of color, right, from their cultures. So... And they were used to be called smelly and disgusting, you know. <laughs> Even when I first came to Australia, that's, you know, that's the experience that I had um, with uh, Australians who didn't really understand, you know, what fer- fermented foods were. Uh, so, yeah, the article pretty much co- uh, uh, talks to um, 14 different fermenters who are people of, uh, who are Black and Indigenous people of colour and ask them about what they think ab- about the industry yeah, basically that uh, uh, fermented foods from uh, non-dominant cultures have been appropriated and whitewashed by white gatekeepers and that white people have more access to social and, and um, financial capital to be able to be at the forefront of the, of the fermentation movement. Um, and the article covers lots of different issues such as compartmentalization, appreciation versus appropriation, um, tokenization and fetishization of both ferments and the people who make them um, when they are people of color. I have to say that I've been thinking about this from the beginning of Ferment Radio because even while inviting you know, people as my guests, as the guests of ours, like a Ferment Radio community, I was also facing this issue, am I not going too white? Am I not like a contributing to this image of, of, you know, fermentation related topics as having like a particular, you know, vibe, like it's a little bit hipster. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, it's good looking, um, kind of happy, you know, uh, a little bit better off and so on. And, um, that's why for me it's so important that we actually even talk about it. I think I we touched upon this topic with two other people, but I see this episode as like a entirely like really focused majorly on that issue. And I would like to hear your opinion and it's something which I've been kind of, you know, juggling in my own head um about is like how to make fermentation lesser white basically. I think that's a very big question because fermentation and the fermentation industry exist within a a system that is systemically racist and systemically problematic. So I don't know if you can really change it in a massive way um, without changing the bigger systems. I would like to think that the fermentation community is, you know, forward thinking and, um, also people who think outside the box a bit, which is why you get into ferments in the first place. And I have found that people in the community are very, um, as you said earlier, interested in connection, interested in using ferments to connect each other and to learn from each other. So can the fermentation community lead the way in some ways within food, you know, um, maybe to an extent, all we can do is keep chipping away. That's all you can do. You can't, I mean, ultimately, we can't fix the fact that 
colonialization happened and is still happening and its impacts are still there. But within the fermentation community, I think what you can do is what you are doing, which is, you know, um, I think trying to learn the history and learn the culture of fermentation and fermented foods and um, try and gauge when it is your time to, you know, be in the forefront or not and what space you are taking up from other uh, people of, uh, from people of color. And also, you know, um, I do think that even since I wrote the article, the, the conversation has advanced, you know, um, for uh, people of color. I think that, you know, Sandor Katz, even though he's white, he does an excellent job at making space for the people of color that he's met and worked with and giving them a platform to have voice. Because the fact is that it's harder for people of color to get published and to have attention upon them because, you know, publishers also have their own agendas, right? So I think someone like Sandor has done a really good job. And, you know, I think if it was up to him, he would be less in the spotlight and kind of push other people into the spotlight. And I think that is changing. Like uh, Mara Jane King, who has worked a lot with Sandor, she is writing a book on Chinese fermentation, for example. So I think there is more and more space for uh, people of color to get into uh, the industry and have more of a voice, certainly, for sure. And I think that the whole conversation that was happening around the time I wrote the article, you know, that I think stemmed from Black Lives Matter, and then stop Asian hate and all, you know, the cultural moment, I think that's um, at least seems to have pushed the fermentation industry in a, in a more positive direction. But, you know, I mean, I'm speaking at, on a panel next, I think next week or the week after for the fermentation association. And, you know, they're predominantly white trade association in the States. And the panel is basically all people of color talking about, is fermentation so white or not? You know, and I'm like, we're still at this point where it's like we have people of color have to do the labor to explain all this stuff. And then what actually changes? I'm not sure. Well, this is also like um, involving, like um, referring to, to the whole like um, uh, food appropriation and culture appropriation topic. And uh I've been, you know, before before I started to do the podcast, uh, as I told you, uh, I've been I've been organizing or co-organizing workshops on fermentation, and we've been focusing on recipes as kimchi, for example. Which now, from the time difference, from the time distance, I am thinking, hmm, we actually never kind of were talking about the origins of the, of that recipe and and this food, and maybe it's something which I would do differently these days. But basically, it boils down to the question: how we can still uh, keep doing keep doing kimchi? How we can prepare ferments which are um, coming from different uh, cultures we are from? And be respectful to it, and don't apply the um, the, the culture appropriation kind of a, uh, like a damaging part of culture appropriation. And it's not; it doesn't involve just like making, but also buying, right? Because I think many of people who listen to us are at least, or are also the customers of of the fer fermentation business. Let's say. 
I think it's very much, look, fermentation doesn't belong to anyone. It belongs to everyone. You know, um, all cultures have been fermenting as soon as we figured out, you know, how to do that, whether it was by accident or not. And I think it's more about, you know, the modern industrial capitalist complex that we live in and how these ferments are monetized or capitalized upon and who's making profit from them, right? So it's not to say that you have to be Korean to make kimchi. It's not it at all. And I think it's about really being interested in learning the historical and sociocultural context and, you know, uh, talking to Korean people about what kimchi means to them and then not saying that you're, the way you make kimchi is the kimchi or if it's really far off even being near to what kimchi is, then, you know, don't call it kimchi, for example. Um, you can say inspired by or, you know, I, I think when I wrote the article, there was a lot of pushback about like, does that mean that I can't make, you know, um, Japanese ferments if I'm not Japanese? This is stupid, you know. And it's like, no, that's not what it is at all. It's just about, especially if you're making it at home. That's your own practice, you know. But once you have a platform, once you want to get published, you know, don't call yourself an expert just because, you know, you've um, done it a few times. <laughs> you know, um, don't take up the space of uh, a person who is actually really con connected to it. But see, there's another complicated aspect of this, which is that um, people of color get compartmentalized, right? So it's like, you're Korean, so you can only make Korean ferments and you can only teach us about Korean ferments because that is your background. But we don't want to hear from you about other kinds of ferments because, you know, you're not of that ethnicity. And that's not what we mean either. There also has to be more space for people of color to, to be generalists, you know? Uh, white experts get to be generalists. They get to make all different kinds of ferments and say they're experts at them and um, without necessarily acknowledging, you know, the, the background and the context really well. I just think that we need space for people of color to also explore and not be not be put in a box of like, you need to make your ferments traditionally. There's a space for tradition, but within each culture, there's going to be space for innovation as well, right? So I think that that is also a thing that happens in, in food and in food media and in the fermentation industry is certainly that like, oh, well, okay, so we've got a, the Korean person makes the kimchi, but they need to make it really, they're the only ones who make it traditionally. They, you know, they, they have all the answers to that. Um, but that, you know, if they, if they veer from that, then, oh, we don't know what to do with that. You know, like it may, it puts people of color in this, as we were talking about, like being in a tribe, like being stuck in this tradition, you know, and not being allowed to move forward, right? So that's another sort of nuance of it, you know, I think. Um, and and also I, within, you know, BIPOC or Black Indigenous people of color is a very general term as well. And it creates a sense of otherness, right? Which is other to white. And so that term in itself is a bit problematic, but that's what we use at the moment. But even within those uh, non-white cultures we're talking about, there's a lot of complexity and a lot of issues there, right? So um, a lot of people in the fermentation industry that are not white are East Asian. So they're Korean, Japanese, Chinese. Chinese probably a bit less, right? Because Japan and Korea have done a really great job at gastro diplomacy, as we call it, you know, um, sort of... Uh, 
making connections to their food culture. Um, but then, you know, what about Black fermenters or Indigenous or First Nations people? Like, they don't really get nearly as much attention as, say, East Asian ferments or East Asian fermenters. And, you know, recently there was a, a stoush between China and Korea because China applied for an international, uh, it's called International Organizational organizational standardization where you apply and they say okay your food meets a standard to be called this thing and they had done it for pao chai which is a Sichuanese fermented vegetable which is has some similarities to kimchi but in character wise when you write it down in the Chinese character it's the same as kimchi right and so the Koreans were like the South Koreans like you're trying to steal kimchi from us and the Chinese are like well no, because pao chai is different, but actually maybe we are trying to, we make 40% of the kimchi that you eat in Korea. You know, you guys brought factories over here and then now Chinese people, you know, so then it was a massive argument, you know. And so even within that, there was this, you're culturally appropriating our food. And that brings us to sort of the, the, the concept of like, I think one of the questions that you sent me was about as a Polish person, you make, you know, Polish ferments, but then you're a bit reluctant to call them that necessarily because there's a whole, you know, evolution of, of that pickle. However, like it's the same with uh, kimchi, like, you know, the Chinese were making sauerkraut. Well, they didn't call it sauerkraut again, <laughs> you know, swan chai it was called, which means sour vegetable basically. And they were probably some of the earliest makers of it. And eventually that, you know, uh, over time traveled into, uh, you know, Europe um, through trade routes and became sauerkraut. And sauerkraut is so important to the German, you know, German people and their identity to an, to an extent. But, you know, you can't just go, but it came from China. So we have to call it swan, you know, it's like certain groups will still, certain communities will still take that food and, and, and do something special to, or have it have a meaning. So when it comes to your Polish pickles, I think you can call them their Polish name and just talk about what it means to you and what it means to your community. Um, because, you know, it's, I'm sure it's dearly beloved, just like most ferments are in each culture. Um, and I think just like kimchi, call it kimchi and tibikos is called tibikos and try to retain their names where it's relevant to, to signify that a certain group of people worked on it, you know, over centuries, for example. So, yeah, I think there's certainly people within the fermentation industry, whether white or not white, who who thinks that this whole conversation is ridiculous, who just think, <laughs> who think that, you know, food is constantly evolving, you know, if we don't um, connect with each other, then food won't be innovated. But I think the problem there is not understanding the difference, the the differences between appropriation and appreciation and cultural exchange and cultural dissemination, they're kind of different. They're, they're different things, but it's sometimes the line is a bit difficult for people to understand, I think. It also made me think that um, maybe, maybe this tension around this topic is also related to the fact that I think we, we think a lot through like borders and, you know, dividing the terms while you describe this, you know, journey of a of a sauerkraut, like how sauerkraut became sauerkraut, that it actually came from Asia, probably took many years. I think 
it kind of uh, gives me a feeling of fluidity and you know those borders become very very blurred it kind of uh, spans over time and 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 geographical distances and maybe we are not used to um, or we forgot to think about uh, ourselves as like very interconnected beings that it's so hard to to make this very exact uh, division like hey this is where kimchi ends and this is where sauerkraut starts no <laughs> because it's almost uh, yeah like that i think you know obviously the sense of nationalism and, and the idea of borders is also a colonial remnant you know the division say of africa for example like i'm just going to draw some lines here and decide that this is this country and this is you know whereas we didn't think of nations in that way you know until actually quite recently in human history right but i think because of the way that um white uh, you know recent colonialism has occurred um uh, perpetrated by you know white people i think that it's created this hierarchy and it's created divisions and it's created um sort of uh wide gaps in in you know uh social and cultural and financial um, aspects of the world, which is why we have to look, put it this way. We wouldn't need to have this conversation if there was a, no such thing as nations, but also everybody was equal and everybody had equal access to everything. And, you know, uh, the world was that sort of, um, uh, whatchamacallit, the world was just exactly how we want a utopia to be. Then we wouldn't have to talk about cultural appropriation right? But we don't live in that world, right? <laughs> so that's why we have this conversation. And hopefully one day we won't, you know, it won't be like that anymore. Um, have you ever seen this movie called La Belle Verte? Verte? I think it's pronounced La Belle Verte. It's a, it's a French movie. And I really recommend watching it because, you know, that's the utopia I guess we want. These people who are hum human-like, at least, live on another planet. And they just, you know, they sleep in the fields and they all live in a community and all their food is natural and they share all their food together. But um, every year they get sent to different planets to learn from the different planets. And no one ever wants to come to Earth because it's such a mess. And they're like, we don't like Earth. It's really strange. And so it's a really great movie to think, to make you think about like, what do we, you know, what do, what quirky things do we have as humans on Earth? And, you know, what a utopian society might think about us. And I think that it very much relates back to um, what we're talking about here. You know, <laughs> like, um, we, we, all these divisions that we have are, uh, you know, are human, are totally human created, and hopefully we can undo them. You know, I don't think probably not in our lifetime, but <laughs> I always like to ask at, at the end because we are kind of heading towards the end. Is there something you would like to add? Something which I don't know you would feel uh, somehow unfulfilled if you if we would not uh, mention here or talk about the reason I love making ferments um, is because it really connects you back to something that's quite primal for us, I think. You know, it makes us think about microbes. It makes us think about our connection uh, to them in this, the symbiotic relationship we have with them. And I don't think that any other kind of food really brings you that close. And I really think it's a beautiful magic, you know, just, I, I know I'm a scientist, right? But it is like magic, you know, you sort of, 
as I used to say, we're not the, the cooks or the chefs, they're microbial chefs and cooks. We just put the ingredients together and they're the ones who, you know, create the, the magic really. It's a, this transformational, uh, it's this transformational practice that I think touches you on a really deep level, you know, about self-transformation as well. So I think I would never want anyone to not make all kinds of fermented foods because they're scared of doing, you know, cultural appropriation. I think it's it's a it's an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to connect with others and and talk to them about it. And um, also just understand that none of us are experts. We're all constantly learning. And honestly, don't ever trust anyone who calls themselves an expert. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because. It, and I, I talked about this a bit in the article, like in Asian culture, where I guess it's come from a Confucian sort of thinking, we're very reluctant to say I'm an expert. Like you literally, especially in Japanese culture, it's very heavy. Like, you know, you can study something for your entire life and they might call you master, but, you know, it's very uncomfortable. It's like, no, you know, there's always more to learn. And I think approaching life in that way is in which, whichever part of your life, the, the desire to learn and the desire to be humble um, and open to more learning, I think that applies a, a, a across the board, right? So certainly with ferments, it's like, what can we learn from the microbes? You know, for me, it's like, what, what can we learn from them? So no, don't ever stop making ferments. Keep making them. It's such a beautiful process. It's so, uh, it, it, it goes really deep, I think, for a lot of people, which is why people love it so much. With more access to social and financial capital, white people have had better chances to be at the forefront of the fermentation movement. But as Dr. Chan points out, fermentation doesn't really belong to anyone. It belongs to everyone. The situation is complex and there is a problem when we lose interest in the historical and social cultural context behind ferments. There is a thin line between cultural appropriation and appreciation and cultural exchange and dissemination. Fermentation is self-transformation and an opportunity to learn. Thank you, Min, for being here with us. If you would like to know more about the show, listen to this episode again or find previous episodes, please go to fermentradio.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and more. I'm always looking forward to hearing from you at hello at fermentradio.com. Ferment Radio is produced by Super Eclectic and supported by Arts Promotion Center Finland. <laughs>